G'day and welcome to the Noob Spiro podcast, the world's number one, the world's premier spearfishing podcast. We live it, we breathe it, we love it. We're all about interviewing the world's best Spiros and, and getting their tips, tricks and advice and sharing them with you so that you can be a better Spiro. And today's guest is no different. He's a three-time New Zealand spearfishing champion by the name of Pat Swanson. Now, Pat's been doing it for years since he was 12 years old in the Taranaki area, and he's an absolute legend in the sport over there. And Shrek interviewed him whilst on holiday over in New Zealand. Now, he didn't just interview Pat. He actually went spearfishing with Pat, and Pat showed him a thing or two. I remember Shrek coming back from that trip and telling me he just could not keep up with Pat in the water. He's just flat out too quick for him. But from what I hear, Pat, he found Shrek found the fish. That's just what I'm hearing. I don't know how true it is, but Shrek was just like, yeah, he was quicker than me. He was better than me, but I found the fish, so I don't know. So Pat and Shrek were over there hunting uh, the famous New Zealand yellowtail kingfish. So uh, fantastic journey there for Shrek and an even better interview in store for us today. Now, before we get into it, I would just firstly like to say bad luck, Pat. The uh, Wallabies got up over the All Blacks uh, here in Brisbane on the 21st, so... I just thought I'd mention that before we get in. It rarely happens, so I just thought I'd share that with all of our New Zealand fans. And before we get into the episode, I would just like to say a big g'day and thank you to Brad Spencer for reaching out. Uh, also, Spiro Pimps, uh, thanks for all the encouragement and kind words. Um, I tried to search for you guys, um, just come up with an error, so I don't know if that's at your end or our end, but th- uh, th- those guys have... Um, Recommended that we interview Diego Santiago from Brazil. Um, G'day to Ben Littlejohn, mate. Great to hear from you, and um, thanks for joining the Noob Spiro community. And Tyrone Canning, Um, he is an avid listener and is very keen to get podcasting and has some great ideas, so we'll keep you informed with Tyrone's progress. But Tyrone, give us a call, and I hope we can help out with getting you started with your podcast. Uh, Well, that's about it from me. I'm not even involved in this interview, which makes it, I think it raises the quality by at least 50%. So uh, enjoy this episode with Pat Swanson, all the way from New Zealand. A big thank you to our sponsor, Adreno. Adreno are one of the world's biggest and best spearfishing stores. They stock a huge range of gear, more than you can imagine. So check them out in store at Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne or get online if you like your shopping online, check them out at spearfishing.com.au where you can save $20 on all purchases over 200 when you check out using the code NoobSpiro. So get online and check them out at spearfishing.com.au and use the code NoobSpiro at checkout. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash NoobSpiro. There's over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Get a couple of books at Turbo and I are both like. The Tim Ferriss books, uh, 4-Hour Workweek and The 4-Hour Body are both available. I also like the look of uh, Undisputed Truth by Mike Tyson. Uh, Check that out at audibletrial.com forward slash noobspiro. G'day guys, welcome to today's Noob Spiro podcast. I'm all by my lonesome today. Turbo is over in Australia. I'm doing an interview on the road with Pat Swanson. Uh, We are down here in sunny old New Plymouth, Taranaki on the west coast of the North Island, New Zealand. And uh, I have got over here for a quick sort of week away to my brother's wedding. 
and been spoiled enough to hook up with Pat, who I met over Facebook, really. And uh, he's an ex-couple-of-time New Zealand spearfishing champion. He still regularly participates in the catfish cull over here. And uh, I'm joining him today in his man cave. So I just want to welcome Pat Swanson to the show. Welcome, Pat. Oh, it's great to be on the show. Um, yeah, um, Shrek's come over here to, to check out all of my dive spots after a bit of a, 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 a time away from the Naki. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it's, it's good to be on the show. Yeah, awesome, Pat. Um, so, I mean, let's just chat about the last few days. So you took me out to a spot <laughs> and uh, we got a bit spoiled. We had good visibility and good conditions and I got a bit of a weather window. Um, I don't know how much you want to give away about the spot, but Taranaki is pretty rugged. There's some big rivers on the far south of Taranaki and the far north. We sort of snuck around in the corner there into a nice spot with some big stony rivers and the vis was good. One day I had 10 to 15 metres and managed to fluke a couple of good um, yellowtail kingfish, New Zealand yellowtail kingfish, which were bloody tasty. They went well at the wedding and a few good craze as well. You want to talk a bit about that, Pat? Yeah, well, <laughs> we, we did get out for a couple of dives. Um, the first dive uh, down the coast from here um, went to a spot I quite liked to go and the conditions were looking all right. Uh, got there, wasn't that great, but got in and um, started gearing up and, of course, realised that I didn't have my mask and snorkel. I somehow left it at my last dive site. So anyway, we, we hatched a plan, decided to get in the water anyway and, and swim out and um, shared a mask and snorkel for about half an hour or so. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, um, the next day we went out and, um, and uh, Shrek showed me how to, how to find kingfish, uh, which, was, which was great. And, uh, and then I showed him how to find crayfish. I led him, led him to the honey hole where he got a beautiful big three kilo buck out of there. So, um, yeah, no, it was, it's always good to actually go diving with somebody new. And, uh, and the best thing was actually it was a bit of a drive to and from, so we had a bit of a chance to have a chat as well. So, yeah, it was great. Yeah, so I found out a few about a few things on, about you on the on the drive, Pat. And by the way, I really enjoyed the dives. Uh, it's a great spot and good 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 spearing with you as well. So um, one thing I found out was about the catfish cull, and you started talking a fair bit about um, some of your spearfishing experiences. So I, I'd love to hear about how you got started though, and and where that was. Um, well, I got started. I guess what sort of got me into into diving was um, watching back in the sort of 70s, I suppose, all of the old Jacques Cousteau movies and that, and uh, I just couldn't wait to get under the water. Um, and when I was about 12, I, I invested in my own gear, bought mask, snorkel and a, a crappy wetsuit and um, and the smallest spare gun I could find and, and went out and started shooting uh, probably the usual usual crap fish that you get here, sort of marble fish and wrasse and things like that. And and just, I guess I was at sort of that, that age where you consume everything about spearfishing and I read everything I could and talked to as many people as I could and, and just went diving as much as I could. But but really, I, I didn't get into spearfishing seriously till I was sort of in my, my, my mid-20s, mid I suppose. And... Um, yeah, I just left a job, and as a farewell gift, gift they gave me a spear gun, a um, a, a Sea Hornet recruit, which was <laughs> which seemed pretty flash back then, and it actually got me some great fish, um, and and yeah, then I I started getting into competitions, so. Um, yeah, the comps comps were great, um, and uh, it just sort of fueled my love for spearfishing a bit more. And um, no, nah, that's that's pretty cool, Pat. Uh, so 
you, you got started seriously in your mid twenties. You're in your mid fifties now. Uh, that's a long history in, in spearfishing. I'm looking at your spearfishing and freediving library. It's pretty phenomenal. And uh, when did you start collecting books along the way? And what 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 ones are probably some of the more influential books you've read? As soon as my parents recognised my um, my passion for for, for diving and, and that, they started buying me books. Um, one of them was the New Zealand Sea Anglers Guide, which uh, um, was by a guy called Raymond Doog. And there was a bit in there about spear fishing. And in fact, these guys um, uh, f- fishing out of a rowboat, and one of them, one of them was looking over the side and looking at these big fish, and the other would dive in and spear one of these harpoka that were down there. And I guess this must have been in the 1940s or something like that. But it seemed pretty incredible. But um, the ones that probably had the most influence on me, um, uh, but the the one by far was um, uh, Dive to Adventure by um, by Hans Huss, and uh, it was sort of published in the early 1950s, and it revolved around the time in the in the 1940s, actually during wartime, when Hans Huss from Austria um, was was um, getting into diving, and he and some mates went over to the the Caribbean and um, just using these pole spears and what the rudimentary fins that were around then started spearing some pretty big fish, big a big groper and and uh, big big jacks and things like that. And uh, you know, for a, a thirteen or fourteen year old reading about this, it just seemed like yeah, the real adventure. And um, it was an amazing book. Um, also, back then, um, in the uh, I guess in the 1960s, a guy called Wade Doak, who's a staunch conservationist in New Zealand now, but he he published a, a magazine called Dive New Zealand, and um, and and that sort of really opened me up my eyes up to the sort of um, the, the sort of fish that could be speared around New Zealand, and these uh, these guys who were just my total heroes back then, you know, sort of winning competitions and spearing massive massive um, kingfish and snapper and stuff, and uh, yeah, it um, it definitely whetted the appetite. All right, cool. Okay, so we've got a little bit of your background. Um, so you started sort of seriously in your mid twenties, and um, you've been competing since then. When you got started, what were some of your biggest issues, and how did you overcome them? Well, de- definitely the the biggest issue was gear, and um, and in the well, I guess it was sort of late nineteen eighties, early nineteen nineties. The amount of gear that you could um, you could get was pretty limited. You know, there was some New Zealand made stuff, some Australian made stuff, the European stuff um, because of high taxes and tariffs wasn't really coming in. And so, yeah, to, to get a decent, comfortable wetsuit, to get a gun that could shoot straight and shoot any range, uh, to get decent fins was pretty difficult. You know, you could get a decent mask and snorkel, but it was definitely the gear, really, that sort of probably held you back the most. But sort of in the early 90s, um, people started um, bringing in gear from overseas, and um, Darren Shields probably... Um, started the revolution by bringing on a lot of European gear. He brought in um, uh, Eslapez fins, which were, um, you know, they were pretty good at the time, and uh, and and a lot of the European guns, Cavalero guns, and things like that. And um, and that's where sort of things really started to take off. 
um, and um, it's a bit of a revelation when you start using you know a decent accurate gun and um, can shoot stuff that's more than a meter away but mm. yeah that was probably the biggest thing yeah, I like you alluded to before I was chasing craze with you the other day and you are a friggin machine like uh, I've never I, I've dived with a couple of guys that are just friggin units and but generally you go diving with a guy that's done commercial diving at some stage and they're in a different different league like they they're um i don't know it's just the way they've trained and the way and the way they've trained their bodies to respond they're just completely different to go from finning pretty hard along the surface to significant bottom time then back up and then shorter recovery times and then back down again i mean we weren't hunting depth it was just chasing craze but like i, I was definitely uh watching you going holy shit and i'm 20 years younger you know so yeah so like can you talk a bit about your commercial experience and um i know there's a lot of guys that listen to this show that are fascinated with the idea of working in the dive industry just give us a bit of a few of your insights into um how, how you got into it and and sort of what that experience was like for you I started off, um, a mate of mine had, had got some power quota or abalone quota um, back in the, I guess, the, the late 80s and um, and he needed um, somebody to help him catch it. So I started going out with him on my days off and, and things like that and, and catching power. And um, sort of from there, um, I, at that stage, I was working in a job teaching and um and so my holidays sort of became relatively free and weekends were free and uh, I got to know a couple of other guys with Quota and, and started going out catching it for them. And um, the thing about commercial diving is basically you're, you're really hungry, you're greedy for money and the more you can catch, um, the more money you make. And, you know, every power that goes into your kit is, is, a, is another dollar in your, in your wallet sort of thing. So... Um, yeah, so it, it became a an idea that oh yeah, that this could be something that I might actually like to do for a while. And um, at that stage, I was living in Wellington and loved living in Wellington. There's some great diving down there. I'd speared some great fish, um, but uh, we sort of hankered for warmer climes, and we ended up shifting up to the Coromandel in the northeast of New Zealand. And um, I worked for a guy, um, Herb who's, uh, you've probably heard on some of the other podcasts, Dwayne Herbert, who's uh, been multiple New Zealand champion. Um, he was just about, I think, eight or nine when we moved up there, and I went to work for Herb, uh, catching mainly kinna or sea urchins and uh, and power. And so I worked for him for about seven years, and during that time, you know, it was a great time, you know, going away with a bunch of blokes and, um, and and fishing from the bottom of Stewart Island up to the Three Kings Islands in the far north. And, you know, you get to see a lot of New Zealand. You get to dive some great places and some great conditions, but you, you also <laughs> get to dive some not such great places and some pretty crappy conditions. And, uh, like, it puts me in mind of the, the, the first time I did a South Island power trip with Herb and... Um, it was just a, a sequence of disasters. For one thing, the, the power price had collapsed, and so things were pretty tight financially. Um, one of my first days out, um, Herb put me in in this place where there's probably about a three-metre swell rolling in, three to four-metre swell, and the visibility was about oh, probably less than two metres. And, uh, 
and I found my way in, in amongst these boulders and things and hadn't allowed for the odd big set that came through and remember being sucked down through these massive boulders and thinking, I'm going to die here, you know, this is just really bad and and went back. I had to spend about half an hour on the boat getting getting my heart rate back down and uh, and then a couple of days after that we were out and, um, and we'd anchored the boat out, took the rubber duck inshore to get some power and we're fishing away. And then the dinghy boy comes back and he says, the boat sunk. And so, <laughs> so it was just a chapter of disasters and, and somehow the anchor rope had got caught around the, the leg of the engine and a bit of water had got on deck and, and we got back there and there was just the bow poking out of the water and there was power all over the bottom and we found the car keys sitting on the bottom so that was a bonus. <laughs> and uh, yeah, but... Um, um, yeah, it was you know disasters, but some great stuff as well. Um, you know, most most days after work, we'd um, we'd go for a spearfish, and uh, you know you got to go to some of the great places in New Zealand, White Island and the Mokahinau Islands, Great Barrier. Um, you know, shooting big fish and um, you know catching big crayfish and stuff like that. It was uh, it was great. Um, but in, you were talking about um, about. Uh, the way I was diving the other day um, and that really does sort of go back to how you have to dive when you're diving commercially your short recovery times um, lots of multiple quick dives and you know you might swim for a hundred meters and then do you know half a dozen quick dives and that was the way to keep your catch rate up and um, so it was very effective I'm, I'm not so sure that that method is a good way of, of becoming a good free diver um, but it certainly makes you efficient, especially especially when you're chasing crayfish and stuff yeah. as well. So yeah, yeah. But yeah, cool. That that was awesome. Like you you sort of give the range there of the of the whole experience. You know, from like <laughs> the four meter swell and getting punished to you know like the experience of being out with a great bunch of blokes and shooting some phenomenal fish. For the guys doing wanting to take on commercial fishing modern day, um, I, I know your experience was you know like not not like ages ago in the past, but what advice would you give to them and how would they go about it? I know you've also travelled quite widely as well, so you've probably seen a bit of commercial diving in other places as well. What advice would you give them? Um, I, I would say that, that if it's something you really want to do and if it's something uh, where you want to improve your, your diving skill, if you want to do a bit of travelling around the country or, or even around the world, I think give it a go. But it, it does have to be something that you're committed to. Um no person who's got a diving operation wants people who are soft. You know, they want people who are going to be able to last in the water. They don't want people who are taking days off or getting sick all the time. Um, people who are prepared to share the load, and um, you know, and, it, and it's not just the diving. It's the washing up the gear at the end. It's the you know, delivering the catch to to whoever's buying it. It's it's cooking dinner at the end of the day or doing the paperwork. It's all of those sorts of things. But um, for me, it was it was actually a really good lifestyle. Uh, it wasn't something I wanted to do forever, but it was good. And and most of the people that you meet involved in it are really good people as well. Just as you were talking there, I was thinking, man, I'm glad Turbo's not here because he would have been looking. <laughs> he would have been looking mighty sheepish then. <laughs> no, no, I had to get in a jibe since he's not here. All right, right, moving on. So you've you've shot heaps of fish. We're looking at a couple of your beauties on the wall here as we interview. Um, I've heard this story, I think. Um, but your most memorable fish. Um, you know, where where were you? What was it? And uh, what was that experience like for you? I've been lucky enough to shoot 
some pretty good fish along the way, but um, there was one one fish I really wanted to shoot, and that was the the harpooka, which. Um, in Australia, I guess, I think they do get harpooka in deep water, but they're sort of a, a deep water groper type thing. Mm. And um, in New Zealand, in the, you know, up until the probably 1970s, 1980s, or 1970s, they were, they were found in quite shallow water quite regularly, but um, they're so dumb and easy to target that they, um, that, they're now relegated in general to, to water over 100 metres deep and it's a pretty rare thing to see them. The only place where you're actually going to be able to go and target shooting harpooka is the Chatham Islands out off to the east of Christchurch. Um, but yeah, one day after after diving for urchins out off uh, the Coromandel coast, um, we were coming back in from, from the Alderman Islands and, and there's a rock partway in called Castle Rock and um, uh, jumped in there. It was about four o'clock at night in June, and you know, getting quite dark, and the water wasn't that clean. And uh, dived down, hoping maybe for a late season kingfish. Dived down amongst all the pink mau mau and stuff. It was really cool. You know, there's lots of fish there. Sort of place where um, oh, you see marcos there pretty regularly, and there's always lots of school fish, uh, trevally and kawai, and and stuff. And um, and just sort of sitting down there in amongst the school fish at about 15 metres, and I don't know what made me turn around, but sort of turned around back towards the rock face, and I see this big fish swimming towards me, and um, at first it was quite indistinct, and I thought it was a big snapper, but ended up um, it was this harpooker just swimming straight for me. And um, I managed to shoot him right between the eyes, and it rolled over dead. It was probably one of the easiest fish I had to shoot, but it was just a fish that... I'd read about and thought about for years, and um, and I don't care if I never shoot another one. Um, yeah, this one was great. It was about 17 kilos, so it was a decent sized fish. And uh, yeah, I just got up to the surface and let out a big wahoo sort of thing. And uh, yeah, and I, I was I was buzzing so much, like I, I we got back back to base and um, you know cleaned up cleaned up the kinner and and then I filleted the harpooker out. And I ended up giving it all away. I didn't get any for myself. I'd, <laughs> I was too busy buzzing about it to think about getting any for myself. But yeah, it was an awesome fish. It, it made me think about how sometimes you know you can read spearfishing books or you can watch videos and you can really learn about a species and really sort of have it have it in your mind about how much you want to shoot that thing. And when the day finally does come, it's amazing how much you appreciate it. And you can see why guys take the big photos all the time with them. And I'm looking at a photo of that harpooker, and it's I think you said it's taken on a on a five meter like a disposable camera or something. Yeah, yeah. But it's a bloody it's a bloody cool looking fish. Guys, we are proud to announce that we now have a code for you guys when purchasing a set of Penetrator freediving fins from penetratorfins.com. These are the best fins going. We love them. Super reactive. They get a great curve, great channels, and they last forever. We've been using them now for years. I've flogged the hell out of mine. I've had them in wrecks and the rocks, the whole lot. Cannot kill them. I even saw the rocking chair at the back of the house on one of the blades the other day and it was someone was sitting on it and I got him to get off and it was the blade was still good, I couldn't believe it. Anyways, so we've got a code for you, it's Noob Spiro and chuck that in at checkout when you're shopping online at penetratorfins.com and you will save yourself $20. That's Noob Spiro at checkout. Get one of the best fins on the planet on your feet and get out there and shoot more fish.
Noobspiro.com is the place to buy your next t-shirt from. You've probably looked in your drawer lately, you've got three or four and they're all tattered and ugly. Get a decent one this time, one you actually like wearing. Now these are comfortable shirts, we went through a couple of different versions before we settled on the, the shirts we like. The material's nice, it's quite nice in the summer when it's, when it's hot, comfy against your skin. They feel good. 35 bucks, free shipping till the end of the year. Get your hands on them at noobspiro.com. All right, next part of the show is the hunting technique. So I've seen you in action, but what's your uh, favorite hunting technique and how do you how do you apply it effectively? Um, well, I guess in terms of hunting technique, like I don't often go out targeting an individual species or anything like that. I, I, I was telling um, Shrek that I'm, I'm definitely a dirty water scrounger and, and, and pretty much whatever I see, um, you know, hopefully... You know, I'll, I'll get, but there's sort of two types of hunting I really, I really enjoy, um, and one is, um, and I know other people have talked about it on the show is, is snapper snooping, and um, there's nothing better than than having a stretch of coast to yourself, and you know, you, you've got the current in your face and the, and the sun over your shoulder, and just working your way along a, a really nice bit of coast and working from gutter to gutter and boulder to boulder looking for, for maybe a, a side of a, a big snapper. And, um, you know, a lot of the time you don't get anything. Um, you know, you won't see anything. It won't be right. Uh, but some days it's just on. And, you know, I, c- I can bring to mind, you know, three or four days, you know, where every rock I've gone over has had a big snapper. And, um, and you know, like one day in particular, I spent 15 minutes in the water and sped six snapper up to about eight or nine kilos or whatever. And I thought, I've got to swim back to the boat now because I'll just keep sparing them. Um, but yeah, so that that's one one sort. But the other one is um, the other fish. I really love shooting. I just love shooting a John Dory. And um, and I know um, in New Zealand they're relatively common. In Australia they're probably less common. But um, they're an ambush predator, a stealth predator, and you can find them in all sorts of places. Um, you, you'll tend to find them where the sand meets the reef, um, and um, you know they're found pretty much everywhere, sort of from from Marlborough north, so up through the North Island. Um, they hang around areas where generally where there's a bit of current, but not always, but always where there's uh, bait fish and things like that. Um, they can be really hard to spot. You know, from from above, they're just like a, a thin sliver, I suppose. But um, and they colour themselves like the weed. So some days, you know, you you'll hunt all day and not see one, but some days you'll get sort of eight or nine. And um, and yeah, they're just a, a really cool fish. They're also delicious to eat. They're fast growing uh, and they're pretty widespread. So I don't mind sort of you know getting a string of them along the way. The biggest one I ever got was um, down in Wellington years ago. Um, there was a place I used to dive, I used to train there, um, and it, it dropped down to about 18 or 20 metres, and I'd just go out there and bounce bounce the bottom out there and and um, and try and get some fish. And this one day, the biggest John Dory I've ever seen um, just swam up to me basically and turned side on, and I had it right through the spot on the side, but it was huge. It covered the bottom of a fish bin. It was, uh, it was massive, so yeah. So those, those are the two of my sort of hunting techniques, I suppose. Cool. I've never shot a John Dory. I've seen him. Um, you said ambush predator. So where do they hide 
and so you, you're swimming along the reef edge where, where it goes to rubble or sand. Um, are you on the bottom, and where are you likely to see the fish? There's sort of there's sort of two techniques. One, one's an active technique where you're following the bottom, but you might be maybe three to five metres above the bottom and just sort of looking sideways, looking down, looking for that telltale sign. They tend to park up. Um, next to boulders or next to a piece of weed on the weed edge, things like that, um, and face into the current. So sometimes you've just got to have a not just one scan around, but a double scan around as well. But the other the other way that you can you can get them is to get right down hard on the bottom, um, on the sand, and um, just scan right at bottom level um, over to the rocks and then out onto the sand because often they'll be right out on the sand sort of waiting to come in for, for when the bait fish are moving along that weed edge. So, um, yeah, but um, they're, they're not always, although they're a slow-moving fish, they're not always that easy to spare. Um, their, their defence technique is to turn end on to you and they've got a very thin profile. Um, I know some divers uh, get the end of their gun and turn them around with that. But e- even though John Dory is slow moving, they can still swim faster than you. Um, so it's really just getting into a position where you can force them to sort of turn side on and then and then shoot them. But yeah, uh, yeah th- that's that's sort of the main ways. Okay, cool. All right, I'm going to shoot one next time I'm home. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. I saw that. How, how big was that fish? And what was that? What was that? Tell us that story. <laughs> it was just a swim in the harbour here, and um, I took the pole spear out for a swim. Just a, a place where I know that sometimes you get John Dory, and um, and I'm using the pole spear a bit now, but I'm not very good with it. And um, and this fish just took off when I saw it, and so I chased after it. And I had to do like four shots to actually hit it. <laughs> Eventually hit it high on the top of it and, and got it. But, uh, yeah, you do have to chase them down sometime. But, uh, yeah, um, sometimes it helps if you swim above them. They'll stop as well. But, um, yeah, it just depends. Yeah, cool. All right, next part of the show, toughest situation. So what's the toughest situation you've found yourself in in the ocean? I mean, you talked about being in four-metre swell and being rushed through some boulders. But, I mean... What's one of the toughest situations you've had on the ocean and um, what actions did you take? What did you learn from it and what would you do differently maybe next time? Well, there's been a few. (laughs) Uh, But uh, probably the one I remember most is, uh, uh, again, um, after a day's diving for urchins, um, we were up at Great Barrier Island and um, I jumped in on a rock there, really fishy place, you know, lots of uh, pink meow meow, there's the odd goldie down there and, and stuff and this nice kingy came swimming in and um, and I got a really good shot into it and um, and got up to the surface and started pulling my float line in and usually when I'm when I'm um, playing kingies I like to just keep swimming in a big circle just to keep the float line going in behind me, the rig line. Uh, but on this day the, the fish was stoned, I thought it was fine. And I got it up nearly into my hands and um, the fish took off. Um, I must have just nicked the spine but not enough to really hurt it. And it took off and my float line, which was quite old and sort of gone a little bit limp and that, did a perfect slip knot around my left wrist. And um, next thing I was, I was 10 metres down, it was, a, it was a decent sized fish. So I reached for my knife and realised I didn't have my knife. And, um, you know, when you're diving for urchins, you don't necessarily always have a knife, you know, because it's another thing to get in the way. 
And, you know, generally I would put one on before I went spearfishing. This day I forgot. Uh, so my only choice was to, to try and drag the fish back up to the surface. I couldn't undo the, the slip knot on my wrist. And um, I remember getting about two metres from the surface and thinking I'm not going to make it. And um, and got to the surface, took a massive breath of air and and held it and then got some more air in and managed to get some um, some slack line and, and pulled the line off my wrist and... Um, and then fought the fish back and um, and dealt to it. The fish was 28 kilos, so it was a decent fish. Um, but it was, it was a huge lesson to me, and, and it was such a lesson to me. I, I, um, this was pre-internet, I guess, but, well, not quite. But I wrote a, an article for the lo- local dive magazine about it, you know, just as a warning for others. And um, But the mistake I made was I hadn't told my wife about my experience, and... Um, Somebody else pointed out the article to her, so I was in the dog box with her for a bit. But yes, yeah, it was a, a big, big learning experience. So never, ever, ever get in the water without a knife. That's powerful. That was really good. I, I hadn't heard that story. That's really good. God bless America, guys. We're joined by Spearing Magazine today. Isn't that right, Turbo? Absolutely. You've done it again. USA. USA. <laughs> God bless America. Now, if you love America and you love spearfishing, get hold of Spearing Magazine at spearingmagazine.com. Hoorah. That's all the American stuff I know. Semper Fi. Chevrolet. (laughs) Short City. Look, guys, the magazine is way better than Turbo's American accent. Probably better than mine, too. You can um, check out check them out on social media actually head along facebook or instagram youtube whatever's your thing find spearing magazine and join those folks they they put up some wicked photos and stories check them out spearingmagazine.com today's podcast brought to you by audible now you can check out uh, audible it's basically audiobooks if you like the new spirit podcast you're probably going to like listening to a book so go to audibletrial.com forward slash to get a free audiobook download and a free 30-day trial now, some of the audiobooks that Turbo and I both like are the 4-Hour Series by Tim Ferriss. Now, there's the 4-Hour Body, 4-Hour Workweek, the 4-Hour Shift, they're all good. His latest book is uh, Tools of Titans. It's unfortunately not an audio version yet, but definitely check out uh, the 4-Hour Workweek. It's friggin' hilarious. I also would like to listen to The Undisputed Truth by uh, Mike Tyson. I think that would be a great uh, read. And also Bigger, Leaner, Stronger by Michael Matthews. It's a... It's the simple science of building the ultimate male body, and uh, I definitely need that. But uh, you can check this out. Get a book for free. Uh, just pump in audibletrial.com forward slash Noob Give it a blast. Check it out. Support the Noob Spiro podcast. Um, I haven't teed anything up with you yet, but the next part of the show is the veteran's fault. Now, this is where we dig sort of deep into an area of our, you know, our interviewees sort of you know life story i guess and and dig dig deep i really liked um the way we dove the other day and you had a real distinct idea about what was out there we did a huge shore dive you know i've swam further but like it was a you know it was a good hike and you had quite a good idea about what was out there i wanted to talk about sort of doing you know how you plan a shore dive like a significant swim how you sort of think about an area and how you want to approach a dive, maybe some tips 
and ideas for young guys that are they might have got a spot off google maps they might have found a nice bit of reef but they, they really don't have much of an idea about how to approach it so as an older experienced guy you're going to a new spot you're going to do a bit of reconnaissance do a big swim what's your sort of what are you what are the main factors you think about and we'll go from there well, a, a lot of my, my learning has been sort of learning by experience, I suppose. Um, we're, we're pretty lucky with a lot of the, the tools that we have these days. Um, Google Earth is actually great for identifying, um, uh, you know, promising diving areas, particularly if you're diving somewhere that hasn't had a lot of diving. Um, social media is also, also pretty good, but I think um, nothing can actually replace um, personal experience and finding out for yourself. Um, so I, I do a lot of shore dives and, um, and even just last year um, a, a mate of mine and I, we, we did a, a shore dive in, um, in the Coromandel that was sort of point to point and we, we did a bit of a measure of it on Google Earth afterwards and, and um, the, the swim we did was about just under 8Ks so it was a fairly decent one but, but, but usually it's, um, you know, before you get in um, you've got to identify where's the best place to get in for a start um, because plenty of people have been caught out by that. But also just um, have a bit of a look around, um, get some clues from the terrain above the water is probably the best thing. Um, you know, look at those ridges coming down, uh, look at where the sandy beaches are, all of those sorts of things. Um, have a look, um, you know, often you can see current lines, uh, you might see birds working and things like that. Sometimes you'll see patches of reef, especially if you've you know, got a bit of elevation in that. Um, and then once, once you get in the water, um, the hardest thing is working out where the fish are. And um, you might jump in and you might swim for a reasonable distance and you might not find anywhere particularly fishy. Uh, but you'll come ac across a spot that's, you know, got a few fish. Um, you might see, say, um, you know, a few bait fish. Um, there might be a little bit of current running on it. Um, might Maybe a few bigger fish around. And you've got to, at some stage, make a decision. Is, is this a place that you're actually going to wait for a while and, um, and work it for a while, maybe half an hour, an hour or whatever, or whether it's not so good and whether to move on? And... Um, whether you're, you're diving for yourself or you're diving in a competition, that's probably the hardest thing to decide. Um, if you've got the time, sometimes it's, it's better to actually do quite a long swim at the start, scope out the area, and then come back to the areas that you found on your way back. Um, the conditions might have changed. Um, they might have actually improved, um, but they might not have. But at least it gives you a feel for the area. And... You know, ideally, a lot of these places are places that you'll want to return to as well. So um, it's about sort of building up that database of information. But, um, yeah, so look, looking for current, um, looking for structure. Structure's a really important thing in, in any diving, whether you're diving the coral or whether you're diving, you know, um, uh, temperate waters and stuff like that. Any structure that's going to hold fish and, and be out in the current is always going to be a winner. Um yeah, generally where there's where there's big predators, um, there'll be there'll, you'll get a broader range of species as well. Um, and when you've found a spot like that, um, you want to go and revisit it a number of times as well. 
Um, I know you re- you revisited one of my spots a few times, <laughs> Shrek, and you found out a bit about it, but it was good because he managed to put me onto a kingy. So uh, so that was really good. And it is about about getting that feel for a place. Um, the other day when we were out getting getting craze, um, I guess it was just from from my experience of diving around Taranaki and and knowing that in Taranaki there's an awful lot of bottom that is pretty featureless uh, but as soon as you find a certain type of structure you'll know and you'll know that if you go down there you'll you know you've got a good chance of finding the crayfish um, mm. and it's recognizing that and whether it's crayfish or fish um, you know the rules still apply yeah you definitely put us on a couple of good honey holes like um, we you know when we did come across some big boulders and, and crack ground you know sort of eight to maybe 12 meters we'd jam a gun in there and then work it as a team to um to take some craze and it was really cool to pull them out and and feed my whole family at a wedding i mean i think that's one of the beautiful things about our sport but i mean this is part of the reason why i did this for a veterans vault because i mean before we even did a longer sort of a dive for crayfish you explained to me sort of what the topography of the bottom was doing what the rough plan was and what we were likely to encounter and i mean like you say you build up a database over time and that was it that was that was perfectly clear you know that you had had a good idea of what was going on out there and uh and like you say like you've got to put in the work you've got to put in the yards and, and learn the spots but no i think there's some good actionable information in there did you have any more tips off the top of your head for guys like like i know we we get we get asked on the show you know can you guys do some more you know like location specific sort of articles and t- t- you know give us a few spots and that i think there really is something in learning the big the, the big how to do it yourself um, I mean, have you got any more tips for these guys that are learning to find spots? Oh, you, you do have to be a bit of a sponge and um, for information. And, um, you know, like uh, I've, I've learned that off a lot of people. I think Ian Puckridge is a, um, a classic one for that. He's very good at, at, at collecting information from a lot of people. Um, and not just divers, not just sparrows either. Talk to fishermen and things like that. But sometimes it's just those little snippets of information and, you know, you might find that a, a, a fisherman's been surf casting and, and has been catching snapper at spot X or whatever and you think, oh, that could be worth going and having a, a look at. But, um, yeah, um, you know, the, the information is, is so readily available these days. Um, but, you know, don't, don't expect a free lunch and, you know, the odd free lunch might come up but um, I think people will respect you as a, as a diver and as a spear fisherman if you actually put the hard yards in yourself. And, you know, I think probably one of the biggest mistakes you can make is actually asking people about spots. You know, I, I, don't, think, I don't think that works. I mean, getting some general information is fine, uh, but asking for specifics, um, you know, you can't expect people to give up that information and, and you, know, um, you know, often that information's been, been hard to come by. Ah, cool. All right. Um, there, there. Are, I am going to promote the blog a little bit here because there's a couple of articles for guys that are wanting to find spots and learn a bit more about how to do it. There's two articles on noobspiro.com about how to shore dive, and that goes right through from planning to entry and exit points and everything. There's another great guest post that someone wrote for us 
uh, in Australia. His name's Clancy Bowman. He wrote an article called Three Online Tools to Help You Find Spearfishing Spots. Check that those articles out at noobspero.com to find out some more information. And, uh, yeah, take, take some of the advice from Pat about paying attention to current, what's going on above the surface, out of the land, and, and these are all big takeaways that, that um, you know, will last for years to come in your spearfishing. Righto. Moving along, Pat, we, we feel, I feel like a funny story. So what's what's one of the funniest things you've experienced out spearfishing? Uh, well, I guess the, as soon as you get a, a bunch of people together, um, there's often often funny things. Um, so uh, I've, can I do two? Yeah, okay, yeah. So, so one of them was um, after, after my first nationals, um, I was lucky enough in my first nationals to finish 20th, and the top 20 guys in that got to go in a selection trial for the New Zealand team. And um, and so I went up to the Bay of Islands for the selection trial and met all of these people who were the sort of the heroes of my sport, like uh, Bob Rosemurgy and Darren Shields and um, Ian Warnock and uh, Shane Fitzmaurice, who uh, I ended up winning three nationals with, which was pretty cool. But um, this particular one, we were all staying in the same place and uh, up at the Bay of Islands and we got out, um, we, we had a two-day selection trial. And the first day we went out and, um, and uh, you know, there'd sort of been a bit of joking and stuff. And uh, there's one guy, Paul Spence, and Paul Spence was probably the greatest diver never to win a nationals. He was second about four times. And um, he, um, he went to uh, open his dive bag and somebody had stashed a dead possum off the road in there. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, this this ended up sort of started the ball rolling, and uh, and it ended up with uh, with Darren Shields, who was there driving away with a, a silver drummer under the um, under the spare wheel in his Holden Commodore. So I think it was a few days before he found that. So uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was just good fun, and and you know, I, I think when you get a bunch of sparrows together, it's pretty good. But um, probably the the best story was um, I was in uh, in Perth. Um, in the Inter-Pacific spearfishing competition and uh, we were we were staying in this, it was like a, a school camp type thing and in dormitories and stuff like that and uh, we'd been out scouting for about the week before and been trying to find fish and uh, out around Rotto, Rotnest Island that was pretty hard going and um, and uh, the night before the competition we were just sort of sitting in our dormitory talking and we could hear some loud voices next door. It's the the Australian team, and um, and I think a couple of them had had a few beers. Were getting a little bit loud. Probably not the thing to do before you have a competition. <laughs> but um, Shane got a, a glass and held it up to the wall, and um, and heard I think it was Greg Smith from Queensland talking <laughs> about the secret spot that he'd found out on the reef, and he'd found this place. And he says, "Oh, thank goodness we'd found this place. You know, there's fish everywhere." And so we, we hatched our plan to basically tag them the next day. And Shane and I just followed them, sort of went parallel with them out. They missed the spot. We landed on it and we got all the fish and, uh, and we ended up beating Australia that competition. But it was great. It was great. Sorry, Turbo, but I'm sure Shrek will be proud. But, uh, yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> they were two bloody good stories. And I, I love it when the Aussies get beaten. So this is great. Uh, no, that's cool. I like the uh, the silver drummer under the spare tire in a car. That's a bloody prick of a move. Oh, good. All right. So, what's in your dive bag, Pat? I mean, you lent some gear to me while I arrived. Um, I was using some of your weights, your so your plastic fins, and um, and a bloody float and float line. So that was ha- helpful. Thank you for that, by the way. But what's in your dive bag over here, Taranaki diving? So we're talking temperate water, ranging from 
what do we get? Maybe 14 degrees here in the depths of winter. 12, 12 degrees to maybe 22 in summer. What are you, what are you using? We're shooting yellowtail kingfish maybe to 20 kg or a bit bigger if you're really, really lucky. And um, we don't shoot crayfish, you grab them by hand here, but like you're saying, you're getting John Dory. Um, what are you using? What's in your kit? Um, so if we go sort of from head to toe, I suppose, first, yeah, um, I've got a favourite snorkel that I've used probably for the last 25 years. It's a Scuba Pro snorkel. Um, you can't get them now. I lost one the other day, which is why I didn't have a mask and snorkel when I went out with uh, with Shrek the other day. Um, I've still got a couple there, uh, but uh, the, yeah, the mask I'm using at the moment is a Mario's Liquid Seal one, uh, which is really good, but um, good for shallow water diving. It's relatively high volume. Um, I'm looking at a lower volume mask for some of the deeper stuff. My fins. Um, I'm using uh, the local Ruku fins, um, just in a, a soft compound composite fin, and they're in a Beauchart foot pocket, really comfortable. Nice, efficient fin. I don't like a long fin because they get in the way when you're diving, they make a bit of noise, and um, and especially if you're doing a bit of travelling and stuff, they, they're just a lot harder to handle. Um, my wetsuit I'm using at the moment is uh, Rob Allen 5mm Scorpia. Um, really like that, nice and comfortable, like the camo design on it. Guns, um, I'm using all sorts of stuff. My, my favourite gun, um, they don't make anymore, and I've got one downstairs here, and I'm too scared to use it because it's probably going to break and, and either hurt me or, or disappoint me by losing a fish. And it's the best gun ever built, which was the Spora Sub Viper. Um, I modified mine with a, a carbon fibre barrel and loved it and it's shot lots of record fish and won me competitions and stuff but um, at the moment I'm using uh, probably three guns in the depths of winter here I've got a little um, Omer 75 centimetre gun that, that kills everything in two metre viz you know or metre viz um, I'm using when it gets a little bit clearer I'm using a, a Rob Allen Scorpia one metre and um, that's just a good knock round gun you can use it anywhere Got me a nice kingy the other day, um, uh, but once the water clears up a bit, um, I'm using a, a Beauchart a Marlin Carbon, and um, it's a 115. Just using twin twin 14 mil rubbers on it, and and it's nice actually. It's uh, it's not not as good as my Spora Sub, but um, but it, it's a nice solid gun. I like the mech in it, and um, and it seems to be accurate for me at the moment. So yeah. What about booties and gloves? Um, crayfish go pretty hard on your hands, uh, as I found out, re-found out again. And uh, you also talked about dive knife. What are you using there? So booties, gloves, and a knife. What are you? What brands? Booties, um, booties, whatever's cheap. Um, because I, especially doing shore dives, I tend to blow through them quite a bit. Um, so I don't really care too much about that. Um, gloves. Um, I've tried all the expensive gloves, but to be honest, the your, your Japanese um, hardware slash gardening type gloves are really good. The the dipped um, gloves, um, you know, they may not be that warm, but they're relatively resistant to crayfish spines and things like that. Um, and as for knives, I lose so many knives. I tend to buy five or six at a time. Um, just the little plastic bait knives. Um, I really like them. They've got a good blade on them. They're, they're still good for shredding fish. If you're burlying fish, they'll icky your fish all right. And they'll cut through line if you have to as well. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
I tend to lend them to people too who lose them as well. But um, yeah, um, I, I, I've used expensive knives, but they seem to work just the same as the cheap knives, to be honest. Now, it's good advice and, and, and good thoughts into some of the gear that is disposable. And like you say, for shore diving booties, you just go through them. Gloves with craze, you just go through them. And you just want something that's going to get the job done. And uh, knives as well, I guess, yeah, you can lose a few of them. Right, next part of the show. Uh, unfortunately, Turbo, it's not Fast Five Facts for Noobs. It's Spiro Q&A, so this is sort of like a faster-paced round of questions. So I'm going to just shoot from the hip here, Pat. What is the single best piece of advice you've been given for spearfishing? Okay, single best piece of advice. Um, that would be um, don't spend money Don't spend money on, on gear. Um spend money on experiences I think and oh, right. and sort of going to places uh, doing things and you know a lot of people um, you know buy all of the the bells and whistles for their for their gear and that but really you've got to get your diving right and the only way you can do that is by time in the water that's mint I like that all right can you describe what the spearfishing experience means to you in one sentence spearfishing for me is my happy place it's a, a spiritual thing for me and um I guess it's where I get a big part of fulfilment in my life. Who has been the most influential person to you in your spearfishing and why? Most influential person uh, would be Shane Fitzmaurice, Woolley. Uh, he lives in Sydney now. Um, and he was my partner in, in many, many competitions. We've dived overseas. We've dived uh, in New Zealand, um, won nationals. He's just an awesome guy, and uh, there's often been times when we've been diving together where, um, where you know, I've wanted to, to give up at things, and he's he's egged me on. You know, he's always supported and encouraged me. Uh, he's also got a great sense of humour. He can also be a real asshole at times, which I probably need from time to time. Uh, mega spear fisherman as well. You know, he's uh, he could just pull out dive after dive. Another ex-commercial diver, actually. All right, so good on you. Shout out to Woolly. So, um. All right, Pat, if you could go back in time to when you were just starting spearfishing all over again, what advice would you give yourself? Um, it's a bit different now, but but if I was going back then, join a club. Um, but but now get involved with a group of people who are spearfishing, you know, whether it's through social media or, you know, just getting to know locals down at the local fishing club or whatever. But um, it, it, there's too much to try and find out on your own. So, um, so. If you can get with a group of like-minded people, you know, you can share costs on trips and things like that, share information. Um, I took too long finding that out. All right, and during your 30-plus years spearfishing, what is the single biggest lesson you've learned? Uh, single biggest lesson, I think, is um, <laughs> you don't need to stop spearfishing. Um, you know, it, it's the sort of thing you can do all your life. Um, I had a mate in, in England, Pete Crawford, who died a couple of years ago, but uh, when he was 80, he spit a, 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 a yellowfin tuna over at um, Ascension Island. It was over 100 kilos, and he was just a legend. So, yeah, why stop? All right, and last question in Spiro Q&A is, what current challenges do you face in your spearfishing, and how are you approaching them? Um, there, there's a few challenges. I think um, one of them is, is getting older, and, you know, um, a lot of things like are less easy and less comfortable than they were before. Um, so it's the old story of if you don't uh, use it, you lose it. So so really it's just keeping going with that. Um, the other challenges, I think, uh, 
there's a big challenge around um, the morals and ethics of spearfishing and things like sustainability. And um, and I think um, in the past, or when I started, you know, you could go out and you could just keep shooting fish. Well, now, you know, that that is just not sustainable. And I think it's really important that that we that each each sparrow needs to draw a line in the sand about about you know what they're going to take and um, and the sort of species that they're going to hunt and and things like that because I think if we want it to, to last into the future we've got to do something about it. It's really easy to to think that things are really good now, but unless you've seen what it was like ten or twenty years ago, um, you don't understand what it's going to be like ten or twenty years in the future. So that that's the next thing. I think the other thing, uh, the probably the third challenge I'd say is that um, spearfishing has become um, a big sport, and with it, it's sort of become quite big business. And I think there are some, I guess, political challenges around that about managing managing the sport in a responsible way and uh, making sure that that you know that that spearfishermen have a voice. Um, and that, yeah, people know about what's happening with spearfishing as well. I think that's a really important thing. So I think, I think it's a really exciting future, but I think there's some real challenges with it as well. All right, and for all the Kiwi Sparrows listening, uh, New Zealand Spearfishing is an organisation you've had a lot to do with. Can you talk a little bit about that? And we were, your second biggest challenge, we were talking about sustainability and spearfishing and you know being selective. After we've talked a little bit about New Zealand spearfishing, I want to talk about the Lake Taupo catfish cull where we can kill everything. Well, every catfish anyway. Yeah, um, Spearfishing New Zealand is, is sort of the, the local body that, that represents spearfishing in New Zealand. And um, 20, 20 or 25 years ago, it probably represented maybe 150 people across across New Zealand. Well, um now, um, you know, if you look on Facebook, the NZ Spiro Forum has probably got nearly 9,000 members, um, and that's just the people who go on Facebook. So um, it, there's actually a lot of people to represent there, and um, and uh, at the moment I'm on the Committee of Spearfishing New Zealand, and one of our, our tasks is going to be to actually... Um, to sample the or or to get some information from from the people who are doing spearfishing in New Zealand about what they want from spearfishing New Zealand. Um, so so I think there's there's um, some things that we're probably doing quite well at the moment. Some things that we can improve on. Um, but really, it's about about representing spearfishing. Um, one of the things spearfishing New Zealand did was about six or seven years ago. Um, we floated, a group of us floated the idea of having a freshwater spearfishing competition. Um, in New Zealand, most freshwater species, um, including trout and salmon, are protected, but there are some fish which are considered noxious. And in Lake Taupo, we have the American brown bullhead catfish. Now, it's not a very big fish, and um, the, the biggest that we've speared in any of our competitions is under 700 grams. Probably the average is only about 300 grams, but they're, they're there in quantity. And um, our, our first competition that um, we hosted, I think we got about 33 divers. It's a unique competition in that it's pole spear only. Um, people dive in pairs, um, and uh, uh, the last three years we've had uh, 200 or more divers turn up for this competition. Um, we generally hold it sort of at the end of January, uh, beginning of, uh, of February. 
Um, there's about six hours in the water. The water's usually about sort of 20, 22 degrees. The visibility's all right, you know, usually around 10 or 12 metres. And um, basically it's a kill fest. <laughs> and, uh, going out and, and shooting these things with a three-pronged pole spear. Um, this year we had 224 divers. Um, there were over 3,800 um, catfish speared. Um, they are edible. But there's a lot of work in making them edible. But all of these got taken off to a local organic farm, and they've been doing this for the last five years. They plough them into the dirt and they grow amazing vegetables. So oh, okay. that's really cool. Um, and uh, yeah, um, this year for the, the third year, uh, my partner Rowan Vibicus and I won it, and um, third year in a row. And uh, we weighed in 171 fish, so uh, it was great. But but more than that, it's actually just about getting together with a bunch of mates and having a good time, having a, a beer and a, and a barbecue afterwards. It's really good. All right, so guys that are curious about possibly travelling over for the uh, Lake Taupo Catfish Cull, uh, how can they find out a bit more about the event? Um, look on um, the Spearfishing New Zealand website and uh, there's a Spearfishing New Zealand Facebook page as well. Uh, that's probably the best thing. Um, at this stage we haven't set the dates for the 2018 competition. Um, I understand that we may be looking at hosting a future round of the World Freshwater Spearfishing um, Champs, which would be really cool. Um, so I doubt whether that, that'll be next year, but maybe the year after. Um, but uh, yeah, if um, if you're interested, um, look on either of those sites and and contact us through that. But yeah, good friendly competition and does the environment good too. Wicked, that sounds awesome, Pat. All good. Well, um, this has been a champion interview. I just wanted to ask if you had any sort of um, parting piece of guidance or wisdom for some of our listeners. Um, I guess um, spearfishing's a bit of a funny thing because people have their preferences with it. And there are a lot of people who get quite snobby about um, about certain species and certain places you dive and stuff. I think you get the most out of spearfishing when you actually try spearfishing in, in all sorts of situations, whether it's in your own country or around your own country, it doesn't really matter. Um, just get in there and get spearfishing. I mean, um, there, there's all those other species to learn. There's all those other places to learn. Um, yeah, just get out there and do it. And he, he, he believes what he says. We were out the other day. The first dive we did, I think, was about three metres fizz. We were sharing a mask. We caught about three crays, and all I saw was a banded wrasse. And that was my first dive back in NZ, and we just had a blast. And uh, it's been a really good time hanging out with you over here, Pat. And uh, thanks for coming out on the show and joining me today. I'm going to look forward to coming over to um, over to Queensland and hopefully getting some diving in over there with you guys at some stage as well. So I think you owe me. <laughs> Yeah, Turbo will show you how to hold massive bottom times and shoot huge fish. <laughs> so, uh, no, awesome, Pat. Thanks, man. Okay, guys, that's today's interview. Thanks for listening. We hope you learned something. Hope you enjoyed today's episode with Pat. He's an absolute legend and a top bloke. And Shrek's not bad either. No, he did a great job there. And if you want to read more uh, about Pat, uh, Shrek did an, uh, an article for a newspaper over there and you can just Google patswansonstuff.co.nz and uh, Pat's interview uh, with Shrek will pop up there. It was pretty much the, Shrek was pretty much the biggest thing that happened to New Zealand that week and he made every paper from top to bottom. Now, speaking of big things, we have some huge guests coming up over the 
next couple of months leading into the Christmas period. I won't tell you who's coming up, but we have an Australian guest, probably the biggest name in Australian spearfishing for the last five to 10 years. Uh, and uh, he's an incredible diver and an incredible interview and he holds nothing back. Now, in his Veterans Vault, we ask uh, this Spiro about three species that everybody wants to shoot, that everyone finds hard to shoot or hard to find, and he gives us the lowdown, the absolute, uh, he holds nothing back. So uh, there's a lot to learn, and I know there's been a lot of Spiros requesting uh, this guy for an interview, and uh, we've got him on the show finally. So stay tuned over the next month for that interview. All right, thanks, thanks for listening, guys. Just before we go, I forgot to uh, introduce to next week's episode with Jerry Cavadias. So we sort of we sort of uh, change pace and go from New Zealand all the way over to the Greek Islands. Now Jerry uh, is a competition diver. He's been diving the Greek Islands his whole life. He's a very deep diver, uh, and this is a very entertaining interview with Jerry. He's a great guy. He's a barrel of fun, and uh, he shares his tips uh, for spearfishing the Mediterranean. Fantastic listen, so stay tuned for next fortnight's episode. Right, that's all from me, guys. Stay safe, never dive alone, and make sure you buddy up. Guys, in today's episode, we have talked about lots of different spearfishing equipment. Chances are you can get your hands on most of it at spearfishing.com.au. They've got competitive prices and an awesome hassle-free returns policy. They uh, have $15 flat rate shipping Australia-wide. Chances are, if you order that equipment today, it will be at your doorstep tomorrow. And you can even save a little bit more money by using the code NoobSpiro at checkout. That'll save you a further $20 on every purchase over $200. It also helps support the NoobSpiro podcast. So head over to spearfishing.com.au and save some money on some gear. Thanks for listening, guys. Guys, today's show is not only brought to you with our partner, spearfishing.com.au, it's brought to you by our brand new ebook available on Amazon Turbo. What's the thing called again? It's called 99 Tips to Get Better at Spearfishing. Why is it called 99 Tips to Get Better at Spearfishing? Because it's got 99 tips in there to help you get better at spearfishing. I thought you said there was way more than 99. Well, there's 99 official tips, but each tip can be broken down into several tips. So it's like tips and tips and... Oh, it's tips on tips. A multiplication of oh, tips. Mate. Just actionable information. Oh, you can put it straight into action. That's awesome. the best thing about it. It should have been tips. called 99 actionable tips to get better at spearfishing. Oh. But because we're paying per letter on the cover, we just went with 99 <laughs> tips to get better at spearfishing. All right, guys, available <laughs> on Amazon.com. Thanks for joining us today on the Noob Spiro podcast.